I'm Alvin Jackson, the Richard Lodge Professor of History uh, at the University of Edinburgh and a member of the Gifford Lectureship Committee. On behalf of that committee, can I warmly welcome you all to Professor Dermot McCullough's second Gifford Lecture in his series on Silence in Christian History, The Witness of Holmes's Dog. This evening's lecture, as with the others in the series, is being recorded and uh, will shortly be available online on the uh, Gifford website. Those of you who weren't able to be present yesterday evening for the first lecture in this series will still doubtless be very well acquainted with Professor McCullough and with his work. His BBC television series on the history of Christianity broadcast originally in 2009, 2010, and his How God Made the English broadcast earlier this year have attracted huge viewing figures and very great acclaim. His published work has simultaneously won scholarly applause and a mass readership and has been widely translated, particularly his History of Christianity, the first 3,000 years, and his Reformation, Europe's House Divided. Indeed, if I may say so, one of Professor McCullough's hallmarks is a combination of profound original research and argument and the ability to communic communicate eloquently with uh, a worldwide audience. I have very great pleasure indeed in handing you over to Professor McCullough for the second of his Gifford lectures, The Triumph of Monastic Silence. Thank you very much for that introduction. Uh, a slight rearrangement of my content uh, uh, over the next few lectures. Today, although we will see the, the beginnings of the triumph of monastic silence, we'll only go to 400 CE. And my third lecture on Thursday will be period from 400 to 1500 up to the Western European Reformation. Then we'll deal next week with the Reformation and that means I'm slightly constricting silences of shame and obfuscation, but redistributing those over the last two sessions. Plenty of shame left over, though, I'm glad to say. So we st I, I, let, let's call this session Catholic Christianity and the Arrival of Asceticism. So that takes us to 400. 100 CE. Uh, presents us with one of the earliest silences in Christian identity building. So great a silence as to be deafening. This is the first Christian great disappointment. When around 60 or 70 years after the Lord Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, it became obvious that he was not going to return imminently after all. We know very little about this crucial turning point in Christian development. Because Christians in their sacred literature say a great deal less than the Jews in the Tanakh about disappointment. But disappointment there must have been. Just as the books of the, of the Tanakh reveal the process of making creative responses to disappointment, there's much to recover from the history of second century Christianity. Enough fragments of evidence to be gathered to show how radically different from the first century Christian groups the later Christian church came to look. It created a canon of scripture, creedal statements, and an institutional clerical ministry for its community life. 
And let, let's meet one of those clerical ministers around the year 100 CE, Ignatius, bishop in Antioch. We know of him because a, a precious little cache of letters survives from Ignatius. Uh, as he looked forward eagerly to his own martyr's death at the hands of the Roman authorities and put across some of the concerns which he felt for his community and for other Christian communities in the Eastern Mediterranean. In those letters, he linked the birth of Christ to cosmic silence in the way which I uh, described at the end of my lecture yesterday. I don't want really to talk about that use of silence because lots of silences interested Ignatius. He reached below the level of the cosmic and the Christological to the role of leaders like himself in guiding church communities. And in a letter to the Christians at Ephesus, he insisted I quote, the more anyone observes that the bishop is silent, the more one should fear him. It is better to be silent and to be real than to talk and not be real. The one who truly possesses the word of Jesus is also able to hear his silence so that he may be perfect, so that he may act through what he says and be known through his silence. And elsewhere, Ignatius elaborated on this, completing a circle of reference to the bishop, to Jesus, and to the church, in association with the first recorded Christian use of a word with a long future which does not appear in the Bible, Catholic. Wherever the bishop appears, let the congregation be, just as wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the whole Catholique church. Well, it may seem puzzling that Ignatius should praise a leader who is silent. And it reflects his view that God is characterized by silence, and he's clearly picked up the silence of Jesus in the New Testament. But there's more to it than that. An urgent polemic fires Ignatius. Evidently, there were Christians in the congregations in Antioch, Ephesus, and Philadelphia who were not impressed by the charismatic authority of bishops. And they looked to others who were not so silent. Paul's hesitations, on which I touched last time, about charismatic phenomena had broadened in the generation of Ignatius. The bishops were worried about charisma, particularly of prophecy. And mobile prophets, prophets who wandered from place to place, there are a number of texts from this era which suggest an increasing anxiety among local church leaders about the rival authority claimed by wandering prophets. Very early manual of church life and organization called the Didache also reminds its readers that the local ministry should be given just as much honor as the mobile ministry. I quote, despise them not. For these are they which are honored of you with the prophets and the teachers. Well, there were makings here of a clash between two sorts of leadership, between bishops and prophets. And it, in fact, broke out in rural Asia Minor a few decades later, after Ignatius's death. Prophets, led by Montanus, many of them even, horror of horrors, women, and they challenged the Episcopal hierarchy and made claims to superior prophetic authority. Well, the Montanists, to cut a long story short, were in the course of time isolated and suppressed. 
And so the bishops saw off one possible challenge to the growing episcopal structure of the church. And with the Montanists departed a Christian discourse of prophecy and therefore, of course, of dumbness, dumb dogs. Characteristically, that discourse has reappeared in the church whenever Christians want to challenge existing power structures. And interestingly, once Montanists had been excluded from the developing mainstream, no one took up Ignatius's peculiar linkage of silence and episcopal authority. It became dead theology, useless theology. It no longer had a purpose. Even though bishops and their adherents eagerly hearkened to Ignatius's insistence that the bishop was the location of Catholicity in the church. Perhaps bishops felt that an idea which had meant so much to Bishop Ignatius was now distinctly unhelpful. And one probable reason for that was that it was too reminiscent of other Christians who were not Montanists, but whose claims to be authentically Christian, Catholic bishops likewise soon rejected, and these people were very interested in silence because now many forms of Christianity were offering alternative paths to the future, away from the matrix of the Jesus cult in first century Judaism. It would have been very surprising if Christians had not broadened and continued that Jewish conversation with Hellenism as they struggled how to interpret the puzzle of their Messiah. And at the end of the second century, another Catholic bishop, Irenaeus in Lyon, we think, scornfully labelled a miscellaneous heap of those efforts as a single gnostice heresis, a choice to claim knowledge, with adherents whom he called gnosticoi. In reality, there never was a single Gnostic movement, just a variety of Christian choices about adapting Greek ways of thought to a Jewish problem. And in the, the subsequent, subsequent struggles between Catholic Christianity and Gnostic Christianity, silence and noise were major issues. Now, in favor of silence for Catholics was a twofold consideration. First, as we've seen, silence played a significant part in Jesus' own thinking about himself. Equally important, it had become a steadily more prominent theme in Greco-Roman philosophy and culture without any prompting from Christians. So from the third century BCE, Plato's discussion of the one and of being increasingly took center stage in both philosophy and discussions of the sacred. God was to be encountered beyond words. Indeed, by stripping divinity of layers of description or attribution of characteristics, a negative theology. Now, negative theology has frequently been treated as if Christians invented the idea. On the contrary, it was well established in the Hellenistic world before Christians came gingerly to consider whether it helped them in their perplexities. Philo of Alexandria, that great Jewish philosopher, deeply committed to exploring the ways of discourse, logos, in relation to the God of Israel, had been wary of negative theology. Any attempt to escape from rational language. But Christians were not so wary, even those who followed the discourse of Logos in John's Gospel. And none were more enthusiastic in grasping at the possibilities than Gnosticoi. Now, we shouldn't look for consistency in Gnostic texts. That wasn't their business. What you see is an interplay between Judaism, Hellenism, 
and the Christian discourse of the New Testament. And it took many different turns. And repeatedly, those turns uh, turned negative theology into stories, just as Luke had turned Paul's insight about the silence of the Tanakh into a story about Zechariah, the priest. And these stories seek to emphasize the remoteness of the created world from ultimate being. And in those progressions, silence generally took precedence over noise. It, Irenaeus said so much in his angry descriptions of Gnostic doctrine, as Professor Hurtado reminded us yesterday. He claimed that Gnostics had made the personified figure of silence into a divine being, Sige. And various of texts, which we now have from the Gnostics themselves, bear Ignatius out. He was right. That wonderful hoard found in Egypt at Nag Hammadi in 1945, a, a Gnostic library in Coptic, wonderful set of new texts. One of those texts, uh, called Allogenes, uh, tells us of the first sound to emerge from silence. And in fact, it was not discourse, it was not the word, but comic gibberish. I quote, the power appeared by means of an energy that is at rest and silent although having uttered a sound thus, zha, zha, zha. That's what the text says. And as that passage might suggest, a contrary but very significant preoccupation within Gnostic literature was that greatest enemy of silence in human affairs, laughter. Laughter and incongruity. Now, the Tanakh contains plenty of laughter which is consistent with its general attitude of reserve towards silence. But alongside the new layers of the New Testament, which uh, suggest that Jesus deployed silence to descriptive effect, there's plenty to suggest that Jesus' ministry was full of irony and jokes. And to that, Gnostic writers added their own emphasis, that one of the characteristics of Jesus Christ was his divine laughter in heaven. That was a major feature of their polemic against Catholic Christians, who in Gnostic eyes had missed the point of both Christ's life and his death. Catholics associated Christ in Gnostic eyes with a false god. They'd taken a naively literal view of his life on earth, rather than understanding that it only seemed real. In modern technical jargon, Christ's life was docetic. And the laughter of the Saviour is particularly concentrated on those who read the Passion narratives, as Catholic Christians did. For they had missed a great divine joke. Another Nag Hammadi text, called The Second Treatise of the Great Seth, spells this out. Uh, it says, and this is words put in the, the, the mouths of Seth, who is also Christ, it was another upon whom they placed the crown of thorns. But I was rejoicing in the height over all the wealth of the archons and the offspring of their error of their empty glory. And I was laughing at their ignorance. When drawing boundaries around the Catholic faith, Catholics decided that this sort of use that Gnostics were making of laughter had decisively tainted it. Christians of all varieties henceforth generally treated laughter with extreme suspicion, particularly anywhere near the liturgy. 
but with a far greater reference than that. So one Syrian writer insisted that Jesus had cried but had never laughed. So laughter is the beginning of the destruction of the soul. And Umberto Eco had a, a, a sound instinct in making that Spanish monk Jorge's deliberate destruction of Aristotle's book on comedy, the culmination of his great medieval detective story, The Name of the Rose. Comedy was the enemy. And by contrast to mainstream Christianity's rejection of laughter, by the second century of the CE, the vocabulary of silence the practice of silence were so all-pervasive in the Hellenistic world that they were unstoppable in penetrating Catholic as well as Gnostic Christianity. After all, more and more articulate Christians were in the social groups which had received something like a good classical education. Justin Martyr, writing in the middle of the second century, was the first surviving theologian to invest heavily in the proposition that Hellenistic wisdom and Christianity were perfectly compatible perfectly capable of being harmonized. And part of this innovative acceptance of Hellenistic uh, thought was Justin's ready deployment of arguments which amount to a negative theology. God is only to be described in terms of what he is not. And so Clement comes to argue with his straw man Jewish opponent, Trypho, about how to interpret Moses' conversation with God in the burning bush, which suggests a rather uh, alarmingly literal God hiding in a bush. And his argument hinges on the idea of a hierarchy of beings in which God the Father is at the summit, the most remote of all. And to God, Justin says, there is no name given. And any Gnostic Christian would have found Justin's arguments on this perfectly familiar. And they amount to the routine language of religious Platonism in his day. So this increasingly Hellenistic style of Christianity was flourishing during the second century, but alongside uh, a growing interest in silence and contemplation generally in the Mediterranean. In the generation which succeeded Justin, so the end of the second century, uh, an, Alexand an Alexandrian theologian, Clement, loved in a teasing fashion to call himself a true Gnostic. And he was even more insistent on the transcendence of a god whose devotees must worship him in silent wonder. And Clement is one of the first Christian theologians to speak habitually of contemplation of the divine beyond language in which with the mind pure, we speak in silence. Yet the problem for Clement, as for all Christians in all ages, was that Jesus himself inconveniently seemed to have privileged spoken prayer by specifying a form of words which the evangelists Mark and Luke recorded as a model of Christian community, the Lord's Prayer. Now, Clement wasn't a theologian to worry over much about solving contradictions. Convinced that mystery is a necessary veil over Christian teaching, he said imperturbably, the word conceals much. So here is a theologian with divided loyalties between words and silence. And that reflects the instability of Christianity's dual parentage, a parentage of Judaism and Hellenism bound to cause instability as they have done ever since. But Christianity tries constantly to overcome that instability, to, to marry that picture of divinity in historic time, Jesus Christ, with Plato's ideas of a transcendent God. 
And that dilemma was reflected in the everyday life of the second and third century church. Now here, the evidence suggests that silence played a much lesser part than in the discourses of theologians like Justin and Clement. First, there was the character of community worship, as it appears in surviving texts after Paul. It was still, as in Paul's time, noisy. Just as in ancient Judaism and ancient religion generally, Christians had to get over a very considerable social prejudice against silent prayer. They did not trust it. And we can tell that by the often convoluted ways in which a series of Christian theologians from Clement onwards try to defend the practice of silent prayer. Clearly, they are arguing against a consensus. Bishop Cyprian of Carthage in the middle of the third century hit on the story of Hannah praying wordlessly and tearfully in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 1, which, as we've seen, had probably uh, almost certainly been intended by its compilers as a defense of private silent prayer. Cyprian went on from that to annex the Lord's statement in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, that your father knows what you need before you ask him. Sounds like a good proof, doesn't it? Unfortunately, he goes straight on then to teach them the Lord's Prayer. So a slightly more strained effort at justification there. But things moved on. Gradually, this weight of argument from theologians worked. And by the fourth century, silent prayer was much more respectable, not least because Platonist theologians, Neoplatonist philosophers, were also eloquent advocates of the practice. So it was becoming generally socially acceptable around Mediterranean. But also the other great factor to which we'll have to return, the growth of monasticism, suddenly makes silent prayer very <coughs> urgently necessary and respectable. So Cyril, Bishop of Jerusalem in the mid-4th century, sought to use Hannah's story in an effort to prevent women praying aloud in church at all. So this is becoming an aggressive rather than a defensive exegesis, a sure sign that many women were not complying with a new assumption when they came to worship. <coughs> In contradistinction to this regular worship of the Catholic Church, that other major movement in church life was now force, another forceful force pulling the church away from silence was the cult of the martyrs. Christians who'd stood defiant against the enemies of God, the enemies of Christ even, uh, as far as death. Martyrs and their admirers came to see themselves as the quintessential Christians a model for others. And when the church allied with Constantine, the cult of the martyrs rapidly expanded with profound effects on the public practice of Catholic Christianity. Now, martyrs were laying down their life for their Lord Jesus. But as a rule, Christian martyrs did not exactly imitate Jesus in his death. That would have been blasphemy. Rather, they were imitating the first Christian martyr, Stephen, even though his public death had been at the hands of Jews and, and not at, at Romans. But if you look at the story of uh, Stephen, you notice just how noisy it is, how loquacious it is. Stephen shows no, none of the hint of reticence which you get in Jesus' trials. None of the silence of Jesus is there. The account is primarily of a, a set-piece speech from Stephen, expounding a highly uncomplimentary view of Jewish history plus then a description of his vision of Jesus in, in heaven. Uh, 
So that, of course, is the point of the martyr. She or he is a witness. That's what the Greek word means. And what witnesses do is talk. And the same was true of those who didn't uh, actually get killed, but suffered for their faith. They didn't flee from persecution. They were called confessors, which is a technical Latin legal term, meaning someone who has pleaded guilty as accused in court. So again, they're talking. And it's very significant that some among the Gnostics strongly disapproved of martyrs, this reaction to persecution. You might think that Gnostics, because they had a contempt for the human body, might be spurred on to sacrifice it in martyrdom like other Christians, but no, clearly the human body wasn't even good enough to sacrifice for their divinity. Not only is there a complete absence of surviving stories of Gnostic martyrs, but Gnostics on occasion opposed martyrdom as a regrettable self-indulgence, and they declared themselves furious that some Christian leaders encouraged naive Christians to embrace martyrdom. So another Nag Hammadi text, the uh, Apocalypse of Peter, says that bishops and deacons who send little ones to their death will be punished. And the recently rediscovered Gospel of Judas, which probably assumed Judas's name precisely to shock and infuriate the bishops, condemns the apostles because they have led the Christian crowds astray to be sacrifices upon an altar. And I think it's no coincidence that it's these people who are the, the greatest explorers of, of, of silence in the second century. Well, that wasn't the only Christian controversy over the nature of martyrdom, and we'll find the same issues recurring again and again in Christian history. The third century was the classic age of martyrdom, when it became empire-wide, directed from the top, on occasions, first in the 250s and then from 303 CE. And in either case, Christians argued fiercely about the rights and wrongs of fleeing persecution, whether they should deceitfully deny their faith, remain silent about it, or stand firm and proclaim it to face torture and death. Equally poisonous debate followed in the late 4th century on the subject of deceit or not saying things although the immediate stakes were by then rather less urgent. And the combatants in that dispute were two literary giants of Western Latin Christianity, Jerome and Augustine of Hippo. And their battleground was a biblical passage and how it should be interpreted, a fiery passage in Paul's epistle to the Galatians, Galatians chapter 2, in which Paul, uh, Paul the Apostle describes his attack on his fellow Apostle Peter for conforming to Jewish law and trying to persuade Gentile Christians to do the same thing. Now, Peter had previously ceased to observe Jewish law, and so Paul accused Peter of cowardice and piled up on Peter and his companions a series of insults such as acted insincerely, insincerity, not straightforwardly. Well, Jerome came to look at these texts, great biblical commentator, but also sometime papal secretary, and not without aspirations to the papacy himself. And he was clearly appalled at the implications of these aspersions on Peter, the man who by the fourth century was being seen as the first pope. And he resolved to defend Peter's reputation in his commentary on the epistle to the Galatians. This he did by the drastic means of suggesting that the whole passage in Galatians represented a prearranged deal between the two apostles. 
designed to preserve peace between warring Jewish and Gentile factions in the church. Both Peter and Paul were therefore, in fact, dissimulating in a sham dispute. And he reinforced his argument by pointing to another instance of Paul admitting dissimulation on the same topic. And he ranged his way backwards through the Old Testament to find similar examples of heroic lying. Augustine was deeply unimpressed by such arguments and repeatedly said so over three decades. In no circumstances, in Augustine's view, were Christians justified in lying. And those two extreme points of view went on simmering in Christian discussions of dissimulation, as we'll see in subsequent sessions. Then came, uh, already by that time, Constantine had made his great deal with the Christian leadership, making Christianity uh, first one among the official religions of the empire and then his successors, making it the only uh, Christian, uh, the only official religion. The cult of the martyrs, as we've seen, went on. It increased it hugely. It went on burgeoning. And that meant that silence remained remote from that aspect of Christianity. The shrines of the martyrs were now free to flourish as centers of festival liturgical celebration. The place when you, you, where you went to have your huge funeral dinner after the death of one of the newly rich among the Christian elite. The martyrs were far from an embarrassment to the Roman elite, even though in their lives and deaths they'd mostly defied Roman power. On the contrary, uh, the uh, accounts proliferated, often losing touch with any historical reality. And ever since, there's been a dichotomy in the Christian interest in pilgrimage and holy places. It began in extrovert festival, celebrating the shrines of individuals who, whose characteristic reason for suffering was that they could not keep quiet. But some Christians from the fourth century actively criticized the cult of pilgrimage and martyrdom, just as Gnostics had criticized the martyrs before them. And some Protestants and radical Christians revived that criticism in the 16th century Reformation. And even among those who cherished pilgrimage, the practice has within it a potentially contrary element, a search not for a person, but for a place whose innate holiness promises an intimate approach to the sacred for those who seek it out. Holy wells, for instance, which have no justification whatsoever in scripture, but have been a huge success of Christian devotion. And that shows you how this search might not be among crowds. It might be by the individual in solitariness. There is a great dilemma in how to use sacred place. It's never left Christianity, nor for that matter, matter the other great Abrahamic religions, Judaism and Islam. Well, still after Constantine's alliance with the church, Christians were dying for their beliefs, sometimes at the hands of other Christians, vying for control of the church and turning Roman imperial power on their enemies, but also across the Roman border to the east in the Sasanian Empire, with whose Zoroastrian rulers hated uh, and were suspicious of Christians precisely because the Romans had now adopted this religion as official. Nevertheless, for most Mediterranean Christians, it was increasingly difficult to witness to the faith as martyrs had done. An alliance with the empire brought a contrary danger, 
smug enjoyment of privilege and imperial favor. So what were Christians to do? Well, some of them turned their attention to practicing or celebrating a different sort of specialized religious heroism, a range of ascetic, celibate lifestyles led singly or in community. Now, this monastic impulse was not, in fact, new in the fourth century. But henceforward, monastic life, ascetic life, hugely expanded in numbers, energy, and self-confidence. And belatedly, it developed a literature reflecting on what it was doing in this distinctive form of Christian life. Now, it's now apparent that in the fourth and fifth centuries, post-Constantinian monks and hermits more or less rewrote their early history. They forgot the real origins of asceticism, which seemed to have been in second century Syria, not in Egypt at all. And instead, they highlighted the work of the Egyptian hermit Antony and the monk Pacomius, who are on the turn of the third century going into the fourth. Quite self-consciously, monks and hermits were portrayed as successors to the martyrs in the pre-Constantinian period. And the lifespans of both Antony and Pacomius were very handy for that because they both spanned that period when Constantine had adopted the church. When Bishop Athanasius of Alexandria crafted his hugely successful biography of Antony, he stressed that Antony was sorry that he'd not been martyred in the persecution of 311. Despite having indulged in deliberately provocative behavior in Alexandria, he simply couldn't get martyred. And once he was out of the way, back out of danger in his Egyptian desert cell, Athanasius says, uh, Antony was there daily being martyred by his conscience and doing battle in the contests of the faith. A new species of saint was in the making. Now that was just as well for monks because they might have well um, been permanently excluded from the life of the official church, just like Montanists and Gnostics before them. Ascetics, remember, lived in supreme solitude. So they might rarely or never participate in the Eucharist. And the Eucharist had become the center of the, the bishop's authority. And the Episcopate early on experienced tensions with the most strenuous spiritual athletes in the movement, just as they had experienced te tensions with the prophets and the Montanists and the Gnostics. The bishops isolated these ascetics rhetorically as early as the second century by such sneering labels as encratite or later on, Messalian, <coughs> promoting the notion that these ascetic devotional practices of Encratites or Messalians were beyond what was seemly or reasonable, when in reality it may have been monks' independent spirits which were the chief source of offence to the bishops. <coughs> and undoubtedly, some ascetics did represent a Christianity at odds with that of the Catholic Church. Many monks and hermits found themselves on the losing sides in Christian fa factional strife in Egypt, the Militian Schism, for instance, but they may also have been linked to a new uh, religion coming out of the Middle East, a new dualist synthesis of monotheistic belief, Manichaeism. Uh, archaeologists have found traces of a Manichaean monastery in a little Egyptian town called Kelis, contemporary with the first golden age of Egyptian Christian monasticism. And I don't suppose that they are unique, those uh, traces at Kelis. And just, just as disconcerting for historians of monasticism was that Nag Hammadi cache of documents, which I referred to, because it was found in close proximity to two of Pacomius's chief monasteries and is datable to Pacomius's lifetime. So what is going on there? 
debate continues as to whether this was the library from a Pacomian monastery. And there's a still wider perspective. It's not fanciful to point out that Syrians were leaders in a flourishing commerce eastwards, beyond the Roman Empire, beyond the Sasanians even, into India, into China. They'd long been familiar with Central Asia and India. They couldn't have failed to notice the importance of celibate communities in the Buddhist tradition or the solitary holy men of Hinduism, traditions long predating Christianity. So how Christian was Christian monasticism, given all those remarkably eclectic connections? It was not straightforward for proponents of monasticism to ground monastic activity in biblical precedent. Though one of their early great uh, pr practitioners, John Cassian, did just that around 400 CE when he crafted a continuous genealogy for monks back to the events described in the Book of Acts, where the first Christian community supposedly pooled their goods to lead a common life. Well, Cassian would not have been sympathetic to the common opinion among modern biblical scholars that this incident never took place. But he could have hardly denied that its denouement in attempted deceit and God striking the deceivers dead was not promising for the future of community of goods. And in fact, there is no further mention of community of goods in the New Testament. Some scholars have attempted to push the undoubtedly very early Syrian ascetic movement right back into the age of the gospel writers, principally to Luke. Luke shows the most interest among the evangelists in the renunciation of worldly goods. And interestingly, he's the evangelist who chiefly emphasizes Jesus' silences. Well, the, the chronological connection is not quite there. There is a gap which still needs to be filled. And many strands in the epistles written in the generation after Paul push in the other direction, detailed attention to organizing family life. Even in one of the epistles to Timothy, the observation that the salvation of women will come through their having children. So not very good news for nuns, I'm afraid. <laughs> the, best, the best that we can say is that Syrian ascetics were much more alert to possible helpful references in the New Testament. Uh, than other early Christians were. And they were also inclined to adjust gospel texts in their Syriac translations to help them in that, to suit their agenda. And one of the most significant early Christian documents from Syria, undoubtedly second century, is the Acts of Thomas, which sounds a recurrent note uh, about Christians using the words stranger and foreigner. These are the descriptions of who Christians are. And the reference uh, is primarily to the Tanakh, uh, with the current uh, recurrent example of the people of Israel in exile. But it's also, of course, to my kingdom is not of this world, good dominical saying. And an obvious question arises out of that, if not of this world, if not of this earth, then where? That question repeatedly received the same answer. For instance, from the fourth century Syriac writer Afrahat, uh, who in two pithily linked observations said, we should be aliens from this world, just as Christ did not belong to this world, and whoever must resemble the angels must alienate himself from man, men. Now, very significant, the year in which he wrote that, it was 337 CE, 
the very same year in which the Emperor Constantine died, the first Christian emperor shortly before his death to receive Christian baptism. The message, message of the monastic alternative to become alien in the world was all the more compelling now that most Christians, including their bishops, had turned to embrace the world and the power which it might offer. That second thought of Afrahat, its identification of alienation from the world with angelic aspirations, had a particular resonance in Syria. Syrian spirituality laid a heavy emphasis on celibacy, too heavy for most other Christians uh, who regarded such enthusiasm as pushing beyond the boundaries of orthodoxy. So angels, sexless beings in heaven, were a useful rhetorical ally for Syrian celibates, as well as no doubt genuinely providing them with a deeply satisfying inspiration. The favorite Syrian evangelist Luke was handy here because he made a much stronger statement than Matthew or Mark in his version of one of Jesus' sayings to the Sadducees in this case, that those in the next world do not marry for they are equal to the angels. So the Syrians had thus arrived at an alliance with the heavenly host, destined to resonate throughout the history of contemplative Christianity, and which we will meet again. But they might aim higher than the angels. Another Syrian word for an ascetic among the sons and daughters of the covenant, the earliest uh, uh, known ascetics, is Ichidaya. Now this word in Syriac has the same root meaning of solitary as the Greek monarchos, which has given us our word monk. And given the Syrian emphasis on celibacy, it would also slide towards a meaning of singleness, but far more resonantly, Syrians would recall, recall the same use, the use of the same word in their Syriac New Testament, the Peshitta, uh, which recurs in the Johannine literature in that Syriac translation. Ichidaya is the one who is only begotten. And so the Syrians, in constructing their celibate identity, had a peculiarly potent association with the model of Christian life. Later expressed forcefully, by Egyptian Bishop Athanasius in his prolonged fight with the Arians. He said, the Son of God has made us sons of the Father and deified men by becoming himself man. Deified men. Eastern Christians have always been much more inclined than Westerners to speak of theosis, reaching out to God, being part of the divinity, Christian union or likeness with God. But ascetics everywhere uh, not just Easterners, would be drawn to this potent idea. But we've still not quite exhausted the range of possible influences on these precocious Christian ascetics. The most obvious example of a holy man renouncing the values of the world and making cuttingly wise pronouncements amid total renunciation was Diogenes of Sinope, first of the cynics, three centuries before the time of Christ. And the aggressively countercultural career of Diogenes inspired significant echoes in a Christian biography written uh, by a Cypriot bishop in the 6th century, Bishop Leontius, and his subject was uh, an ascetic of 100 years earlier, uh, a man called Simeon, lots of Simeons in Syrian uh, uh, sainthood. This one was called Salus, uh, from a Syriac word which might well be translated as silly, fool. 
since Simeon the Silly was the first in a genre of crazy Christians who with gingerly admiration have been christened holy fools and who may still be found in orthodox Christianity today. Well, this is a notable exception to that general Christian hostility towards raucous mirth, the things that Simeon the Silly did. He rushed into the female bathhouse for the greater glory of God, his biographer said. <laughs> and he threw nuts at the congregation in the liturgy from the gallery above. I, 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 spare, I spare you some of his other exploits. All for the greater glory of God. But you see that this has taken its origin from a pre-Christian, non-biblical source, Diogenes happily residing in his wine jar on the outskirts of classical Athens. It should not be forgotten, therefore, that Simeon's spiritual ancestors, and the ancestors in some sense of all Christian contemplatives, were Greek philosophers rather than any character in the Christian Bible. They do not look like uh, characters in the Christian Bible. Thanks to Athanasius and a host of later writers, it's easy to uh, perpetuate another myth, to jump to the label of desert fathers to characterize ascetics and contemplatives in the early church. The reality was much more complex and much more interesting. Because what's apparent is the way that from the beginning, silence and contemplation were constructed in the middle of ordinary life, in the middle of ordinary society, as much as in solitude. The first celibate communities, which we can glimpse in second century Syria, those sons and daughters of the covenant, were within wider Christian communities. They were doing service for the church within the world. They are not associated with the extremes of spiritual athletics, which have dominated Christian mystery of, uh, memory of Syrian asceticism. And even those who we do remember as the, the profoundly heroic ascetics of Syria, the pillar dwellers, the stylites, are not quite the lovers of solitude that history has made them. For their lives, perched in proto-balloon baskets atop their pillars, were intimately bound up with preaching, preaching to crowds, and with an active role in the religious, secular politics of their day. And any of you who visited that wonderful ruined church and monastic precinct surrounding the pillar of the first of them, St. Simeon, the stylite, note where it is on top of a great bluff above two great main roads of the Roman imperial system. This was no shy retiring violet of a saint. He wanted to be noticed and he wanted to be heard and the crowds came. And the conquering Muslims of the seventh century may well have taken their cue from these Syrian holy men shouting the praises of God from a high pillar when they invented the structures which we now know as minarets. Athanasius had a genius for coining a memorable phrase, as we've already discovered. And famously, he observed in his biography of Antony that the desert was made a city by monks. But that same biography makes the reality clear that the early setting of eremitical life was not in the desert, not in the desert at all. It was close to the villages of the Nile Delta, within sight of the desert, yes, but certainly within sight of villages. It was among the villages that the young Antony wandered, seeking out solitaries and ascetics in the 250s, 260s. There's no question that later on, Antony was the leading figure in the move of solitaries into the desert, but not all of them followed him there. The earliest known use of the Greek word monarchos is in a secular petition 
in an Egyptian papyrus dating from the year 324 CE. Remarkably early, therefore. But what's interesting about this monarchos is that he was not living in a wilderness. The reason that we know about him is that he was a passerby in a village street who stepped in and helped to break up a fight. He was a witness in a legal case. And that other great monastic pioneer, monastic rather than eremitical pioneer, Pacomius, ex-soldier, set up his exceptionally carefully regulated soldierly pioneer monastic community, not in the desert, but in the deserted houses of a village which he'd found conveniently abandoned close to the banks of the Upper Nile. And he followed with a second takeover of a deserted village, and soon a system of related monasteries sprang up around these first communities. And what you might see Pacomius doing is effectively remedying decades of social disruption in Egypt, to which imperial tax burdens had contributed. People were fleeing their villages. Pacomius was repopulating these villages in a very particular way. Because Pacomius's houses were hives of manufacturing, the abbot's eye on commerce was as canny as that of any Victorian Methodist factory owner. Silence was only one strategy among several in Egyptian pursuit and performance of contemplation. His community at worshipped listened to a reader of scripture while they systematically plaited mats and ropes from reeds an activity which one might see as the ancestor of the prayerful repetition of rosary beads, but was also handily one of the staples of community income. There's an alarming suggestion that Pacomius had an unhealthy attention to detail in the fact that the annual financial accounts to the monastic federation required every abbot to give an exact numerical report on the number of ropes woven in worship. And outside the church, Pacomian monks apparently carried on a remarkably varied number of useful trades, likewise in silence. And something which much impressed observers, they also ate their meals in silence. And the great fourth century monastic founder Makarios, the Egyptian, produced a rather startling image for a practice which particularly in Eastern Christianity was and has been a much loved staple of contemplation. He recommended the mental, rep uh, mental repetition of the name of Jesus, saying that it reminded him of what old women and girls used to do in his youth, which was to sweeten their foul breath with chewing gum. How much more would Jesus' name banish the foulness of demons, he concluded triumphantly. So the Jesus prayer as chewing gum. Silence was balanced by other aspects of the pursuit of holiness in these communities. The fourth century Abba, John the Little, in the great monastic federation of Scetis on the western edge of the delta, listed weeping and groaning as an important part of the agenda of a praying monk, for he believed that a man should have a little bit of all the virtues. Silence, weeping, groaning. And it was an essential part of the life of communities that younger or junior monks should seek out their elders in places like Scetis and the Scetis Federation and demand, as of right, a word, that is, a wise saying. And the resulting answers are the basis of much of our literature of the Desert Fathers, particularly that great collection from Scetis, the Apothemata Patrum. And it was quite possible or permissible for such a noted spiritual leader as John the Little to be kept up from dusk to dawn speaking to a monk about virtue until they noticed the first light of morning. 
And on the set days of catechesis, twice a week in Pacomian monasteries, Pacomius ordered that his monks enjoy not just instruction from a, cate a catechist, but afterwards general discussion of what had been taught, maybe even argument which may have had the incidental advantage of taking the monks' attention away from the fact that they had been fasting all day. All their arguments might have carried them away. Well, that's monastic communities, but hermits clearly were much more inclined to privilege silence over dispensing of verbal wisdom. The hermit Agaton, for instance, contemporary of Macarius the Egyptian, was reputed to have spent three, year, three years with a stone in his mouth to encourage him in his practice of refraining from speech. And others were inclined to allow the Holy Spirit to decide when they should deliver the word, sometimes remaining deaf to the pleas of their admirers for days on end. And of course, the prerogative to speak or not to speak in such circumstances was a sign of their spiritual power, their authority. In the later fourth century, monks began to write all this stuff down instead of simply expressing it in conversation. And they took up the existing discussions of silence, which were still proliferating, developing around them. And not all those discussions were in a contemplative or mystical direction, and not all of them were Christian, because Neoplatonists were still developing themes which had been the property of Platonists long before they'd been the property of Christians. Some of the most radical uh, projections of neg negative theology were from the fifth century Neoplatonist Proclus who passionately hymned the unknowability of God. And then his successor, the philosopher Damascius, who fell victim to the Emperor Justinian's Christian vandalism in the final closure of the Athenian Academy in 529. Damascius spent his last years in exile in the Sasanian Empire, and it was appropriate in view of that enforced journey east that he sounded more like a Buddhist than any previous Greek philosopher in his emphasis on silence and the failure of reason. He created a phrase which I think has great potential in our own time when Christians argue about whether God should be spoken of in terms of a masculine pronoun. Damascus suggested that the reference to ultimate divinity should be to that yonder, that yonder. Much of this discussion of silence in the mystical life remained very tenuously poised on the frontier of what now reframed itself as orthodox Christianity. Some of it was well inside. One of the Cappadocian fathers, Basil the Great, both Bishop of Caesarea in Cappadocia, in what's now Turkey, and also creator of one of the first most widely used monastic rules. So he thus united the charisma of monk and bishop, which as we've seen was one of the great potential fault lines in early Christianity. But others were not so lucky. Basil's hugely influential younger contemporary from the Black Sea region, Pontus, Evagrius of Pontus, Evagrius Ponticus, officially tainted by his admiration for that riskily adventurous theologian Origen. A council of the church posthumously condemned Evagrius in 553, so he joined Origen in official disfavor. But the extent of his suppression within orthodoxy was far more thoroughgoing than in Origen's case. The rediscovery of Evagrius has had to wait modern investigators, many of them retrieving translations of his lost Greek works from Armenian or Syriac manuscripts preserved by non-imperial churches 
which continued to cherish his memory when the imperial church had condemned it. Like so many other ascetics, Evagrius started on a road of inner exploration, and the results he expressed in language which owed much to the pre-Christian past. The one who struggled would arrive, as would have Stoic, at a state of serenity, apatheia, and then at a final state for which Evagrius was not afraid to use that word with our past, gnosis. Equally resonant for him was another basic word, nous, mind. And it had been key also to many Gnostic cosmologies, that word mind, and now it became the chief actor in Evagrius's regimen of prayer. Quite remarkably, and apparently without any precedent, he saw the individual mind as the chief arena for prayer. It was a simple, long-established principle for Christians and non-Christians alike, as far back as Clement, that prayer was a conversation with God. But Evagrius refined this idea. He said firmly that prayer is a conversation of mind with God. It was the mind's highest activity. This was the beginning of centuries of contemplative practice for communities, which at first dared not give Evagrius the credit, and in the end forgot him altogether. His descriptions of progress in the spiritual life could not be ignored because they chimed with the experience of generations of monks to come. He framed his in instruction self-consciously like a doctor, prescribing a program of exercise for nous, mind. Each day in structured monastic life, there should be a rhythm, an orderly recital from the Psalms of David, followed by a short time of silent prayer. He did it a hundred times a day. Together with meditation on the Bible, this was the seedbed in which prayer could grow. So medical metaphors, uh, horticultural metaphors, very important to Evagrius. And he insisted all through his writings, in a way unprecedented in previous Christian discussions of the life of prayer, that meditation was only one stage. Ultimately, all these images which meant so much to him must be stripped away from the contemplation of God. What remained in the conversation with the divine was what he called pure prayer. Such an approach was unmistakably reminiscent of what Neoplatonists were saying in the same era, around 400 CE, even though Evagrius framed it in terms of the Christian Bible and Trinitarian theology. What he was describing was a distinction which in later Christianity has become hugely important and to which we return again and again. The difference was characteristically clarified in the Latin West with that Latin genius for precise categorization. And the difference was between meditation and contemplation. Now often these terms are used with much less precision than a Latin taxonomist would like. And often that's because the two states flow into each other, just as Evagrius had described. But it's important to see that distinction, understand there is a distinction. It's very well put by a bishop of the Counter-Reformation, French bishop, condemned to spend most of his career gazing at his own cathedral from afar. Because before he was born, it became embedded in the headquarters of European Calvinism. He was Francois de Sales, would-be Prince Bishop of Geneva. And de Sales emphasized that meditation, meditation, should be considered as activity. So he called it nothing other than a process of attentive thought, 
either reiterated or voluntary entertained by the mind in order to excite the will to holy and salvific affections and resolutions. Note all those terms of activity in the brief passage. Attentive thought, reiterated, entertained, excite, affections, resolutions. And then de Salle went on to contrast that with contemplation, which he said was beyond activity. I quote, nothing other than a loving, simple, and permanent attention of the mind to divine things. Repeatedly, mystics have discovered for themselves that same distinction, which is also a progression. In our next session, we'll see how this recurrent inward ecumenism developed among contemplatives and ascetics, despite the contrary dynamic of Christian history. Because in the century after Evagrius, Evagrius died, the Christian world became structurally as fragmented as it had been in the time of Ignatius of Antioch. And up to the present day, that has never changed. So, to next time. Can I thank Professor McCullough uh, on your behalf for a wonderfully uh, wide-ranging analysis and contextualization of the theme of silence in the early church, and not least, I think, for introducing us to the wonderful St. Simeon the Silly. Uh, do we have any questions? There is a cordless microphone, so just raise your hand, and can you wait until the microphone uh, comes forward? Thank you for that very informative. I don't. Okay. Um, do you think that um, the encouragement of silent prayer was a liberating experience for ordinary people, or do you think it was largely used as a means of social control since it meant that um, only the religious elites could convey their theology in spoken prayer? No, I, I don't think at all it's an instrument of social control. In fact, it's quite the reverse, because silent prayer liberates you from anyone else listening to you. And uh, I, I will say a lot about this next time, but I think it's actually a profoundly democratic uh, impulse in the church, particularly when associated with icons, uh, because the illiterate can enter spiritual depths that the greatest theologian can through the icon. So no, I, I, it's clearly the, the consensus of society that silent prayer is a threat. You just don't know what they're praying for. They could be praying for you to die. And, um, and particular emperors are, are, are not at all happy with that. In fact, Justinian tried to reverse the process. Uh, he tried to forbid silent prayer, uh, precisely, of course, because he was paranoid about the population of Constantinople. So no, I, I think it's a really important development in, in making individual worship a possibility rather than communal liturgical worship. And that seems to be the point of the story of Hannah, which I talked about last time. You know, Hannah prays silently and the priest uh, Eli in Shiloh says, you, can't, you, you must be drunk doing that. And she says, no, I'm not. I'm just praying to God. And, and he, in the end, sees the point. But it's, it's belated. It used in any way because there was no way for anybody to, to stand up and, and, in a sense, convey a different, a different theology, a different way of thinking within the service you were confined to the liturgy. Well, I, th I suppose that's true. Uh, but then liturgy is never the better for people saying, I don't think that's right. 
because that's, uh, liturgy is a communal thing. I mean, it's meant to be an expression of unity. Uh, and I always feel if a sermon is bad, one should wait to afterwards to tell the preacher that, and <laughs> not in front of his congregation either. Yes, in private. Hmm. Thank you. Is there a connection between um, theologizing beyond language and negative theology? There is. Uh, they are not identical, but they are both pushing in the same direction. Uh, and the problem about negative theology is of course, that it is still expressed in words. Uh, and uh, this exercises the, the Neoplatonists a great deal, m much more, I think, than it exercises Christians, who are stuck with words because they've got the, the Bible and they've got liturgy. Uh, so not much, and they've got Jesus. There's not much they can do about that, but uh, for, for Neoplatonists who really are trying to get at the purity of God, it's a real problem. And I think that's why Damascus's final, you know, the last sort of wave before the Greek philosophical, tr philosophical tradition drowns, uh, that yonder is, is very interesting. You emphasised the busyness of the early monastic communities. What's the role of silent prayer within those nascent monastic enterprises? Well, it's part of uh, a spectrum of things which they do. Uh, most of their work, as I church um, described, is, is in silence. But it's a very busy silence. But it's the sort of silence in which you are doing something repetitive, uh, pattern-like, in order to free your mind. So it is very much like the, the later practice of hesychasm or, or things that Sufis do. Uh, it's a form of activity. Uh, I, I, one, one thing I think which is interesting about uh, Sufism is that it, it, it is very active to the point of you know, the whirling dervishes of, um, of Constantinople. And it, it's a, a fascinating question as to why Christianity did not go down the road of dancing like the Sufis did. I suspect it's simply the particular circumstances of the time. It's, it's 14th, 15th century Istanbul, Constantinople, and, and the Ottomans don't want that sort of extra overt Christian activity. Whereas it's implicit in the early stages of hesychasm. Uh, the, the, there's a great physical element to it, which is then uh, phased out. But you know, clearly, repetitive activity is as good as the rosary or, or you know, anything like that. Was there any indication in early monasticism of the idea that you find in the Upanishads and Vedanta of sacrifice becoming interior in the form of meditation? In other words, interior, interiority and silence meditation becoming a form of sacrifice. Sacrifice. Oh, well, yes, I mean, the, the, that, that rhetoric of sacrifice is there right from Athanasius onwards. They, they, they clearly want to make a connection between martyrdom and ascetic practice, which, of course, in, in, in Syria in particular, is real. And the, 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 the crazy things that these Syriac uh, uh, ascetics do, I think particularly because it, they're in painfully conscious that this is not just some sort of political link with past martyrdom. They are looking across the Sasanian Empire's frontier 
and they're seeing Christians horribly suffering for their faith, and they are very frustrated by that. They want to do something which is as serious, as sacrificial as the burning alive which is happening uh, in, in the Sasanian capital. So th there's a very strong emphasis on that very early on. But, but it's also merging with what the, the things I'm beginning to say, uh, as in Evagrius's uh, ideas, uh, about pushing on, uh, stripping yourself down of, of that which is not essential in order to get something which is more real. You mentioned the uh, tension between the early bishops and peripatetic ministry. I was wondering if you could just expand a little on any possible tensions between centralized Episcopal authority and monastic communities, with the potential for them being a, an alternative locus of spiritual authority. Yeah, well, uh, an acute question. Uh, there's an enormous possibility of that. Uh, and it, it has rolled down the Christian centuries. Uh, these are two different sorts of charisma. One is Episcopal charisma, uh, which you might say is the charisma of a bureaucrat very often. And the other is a charisma of, of the individual spiritual athlete. Uh, and normally, thanks to Athanasius, that has not seemed to be a problem. And the, the, the great work in, in uh, hiding that problem is Athanasius's life of Antony, which ties the ascetic life into the Episcopal world and, and who could be more orthodox than Athanasius. Uh, so, so and yet still, throughout the history of the church, abbots and bishops have been problematic against each other. And one of the most interesting resolutions of that conflict, a unique resolution, is in the church in Ethiopia, which is Episcopal through most of its history, but it only has one bishop, and that bishop is sent from Alexandria, a copt, who normally doesn't speak Gaeas at all, or any of the languages of Ethiopia, normally is extremely elderly, and therefore has no power at all in the church of Ethiopia. The church is run by abbots. And that is the case right up to the 19th century and 20th century when, when Ethiopia decided they'd get their own bishop and cut off links with the Copts, much to the Copts' fury. But that's a unique, as so much in the Ethiopian church, they go off in this, this, their own direction, uh, away from everything else the Christian world does. Uh, but that's their privilege. But it, it's precisely that tension between Episcopal charisma and monastic charisma, which that Ethiopian suggestion, uh, that situation, uh, um, encapsulates. Yes. Does Syrian monasticism ever in sort of entirely cloister itself? Because I know that in the 6th century, they're still running all over the place in the cities, helping the poor and dealing with the Persian sieges of Roman cities and sort of that sort of thing. So do they ever sort of just retreat within the walls? Oh, they do. Yeah, they, they very much do. I mean, particularly when the, the rule of Basil becomes a, a very common model among monasticism, which in the 5th, 6th century onwards, you get monastic communities. The, the imperial Christianity likes the set uh, monastery with its walls, the classic case being St. Catherine's on, on Sinai, of course. But what I also talk about in, in next week is, is, is that wandering asceticism never closes down in Eastern Christianity. In the West, it is virtually eliminated because St. Benedict hated it. 
And, and he says that it's just a very bad thing, wandering monks. And so that's one of the great differences between West and East and Christianity, uh, with results which I will discuss next time. Why is uh, Syrian monasticism written out, if I followed you correctly, written out of the origin story? It, this is profoundly puzzling. Uh, the, the Syrians do it as well. Uh, they buy into the, the idea that uh, Antony and Pacomius are the origin people. They forget about the sons and daughters of the covenant. And I, I can only think that it, it's the, the sheer success of the life of Antony by Athanasius, because it solves all those problems between the, 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 the bishops uh, and the monks. It, it's a huge bestseller. It's one of the great bestsellers of the ancient world. Uh, and so uh, it's probably just that. One last question. Going, tired. Oh, going, no. oh yes, <laughs> just in time. Just in time. Are all these monastic uh, groups that you were talking about, are they all exclusively male? No, no, they're not. No, there are, there are communities of nuns right from the start. Not as many as the male communities, but they are there, and they have uh, very much the same sort of profile, same sort of power. Uh, so they, they are there. But since most history is written by men, we don't hear as much about them as we do about the, the women, uh, as the men. Okay, can I again uh, uh, thank you very, very much indeed for uh, a superb lecture and can I remind the audience that the next installment of this wonderful series is Thursday. Thank you. This production is brought to you by the University of Edinburgh.